What a great morning already. Good morning. Thank you for uh, filling the blank for me. Um, as we, uh, one is we want a lot of good things going on today. We want to welcome in a lot of folks. We've got a lot of our Leland folks here as uh, we prepare to get them. And then some of them are gathered over there as we're doing some test runs on the new facility that will be opening up uh, on December uh, the 17th. So we're really excited um, about that. And uh, we know we have folks in Leland and Newburn gathered with us, but we have a couple of uh, local things to celebrate here. I want to say congratulations to the Hoggard Vikings, uh, state champion, state playoffs coming up, state, uh, we play for the state championship. And also how about them Seahawks uh, beating Kentucky last night? It's like, whoa. Um, I'll leave all of the rest of the gloating uh, for another time because there's so much confusion around all the other sports uh, right now. So we'll just leave that for, um, for another time. But uh, we're starting a new series, um, getting ready for, for Christmas. And that's what we're gonna just prepare ourselves to celebrate Christmas. A lot of us are preparing already, right? You're decorating your houses, you're already decorated. Uh, my wife and I started decorating. Uh, we went low key, we had three Christmas trees in, in our house. Uh, and she was like, I think we're just gonna do it low key. And then as we get closer, we're like, can we get the wreaths out? Can we get, so it'll probably be full on uh, by the end of this, but, but we're preparing for Christmas. Um, a lot of you are meal planning, you're travel planning, you're you know, gift giving, trying to decide who's gonna give you a gift so you can give them a gift back. And all the things that we do, right, in this time of year to try to enjoy the season. I think it's ironic that a lot of the things that we do, you know, that, that creates so much disenjoyment, we do trying to figure out ways to actually enjoy um, the season. And so I know it's, it's chaotic. There's a lot of things going on and we're not likely to stop uh, the hustle and bustle that's already here. Um, but what I hope we can do is to provide a way for us to better prioritize and to better navigate this season by treating it like a season. We're going to do this uh, in a little bit different way. Um, a lot of us have grown up and sort of the end of this season is uh, Christmas Day, right? Uh, this is where everything comes down and everything lands it's on this day. And at the end of this day, we just sort of collapse into what becomes next year. Uh, but in the, the Christian calendar, the ancient church calendar, um, the season leading up to Christmas is known as Advent. And this is the preparation for the arrival of Jesus. And then what happens is Christmas actually begins on the 25th. And this is what we're going to do as a church this year. Christmas is going to begin on the 21st, I mean on the 25th, the 25th on Christmas Day. We'll celebrate Christmas Eve services and we've got some ways on the 25th, we're gonna create a season, we're gonna celebrate Christmas. You have the 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, one, two, three, four, five, and then you have January the 6th. And this is the next place on the ancient church calendar. You may know what January 6th is? It's Epiphany. Can y'all hear that? It's Epiphany. Epiphany. And this, this, this is known as the 12 days of Christmas. This is where the song came from. We're not going to do partridges in a pear tree and such, but we're going to do something better. He wants a partridge in a pear tree. Um, we've created, there's in these 12 days, we're going to take 10 of these days. We've created a personal tree, which we do every year. If you're new be online, there'll be actually a, a guide that you'll be getting here in the next couple of weeks. But it's two sections, looking back and then looking ahead. And it's divided into five sections. Each of those sections are divided into five. So there's 10 of them. You can do them one a day for two weeks, or you can do that all at one time like you do. I'll probably do mine in a couple hours in one day. But however you do, we want you to use this personal retreat. What we're doing is we're learning how to see. 
We're learning how to see. We want to look back, we want to look forward, we want to prepare ourselves. What Epiphany is about, Epiphany is, is noted by two passages. One is the wise men coming and giving gifts to Jesus. And it's also connected to the baptism of Jesus. But what it is, it's, it means it's, it's, a, it's an appearing or like a light bulb goes off. And what a lot of us think is that when a light bulb goes off, it means like, ah, oh, I now get everything. I get it. I understand everything. And that's not what this means. When, an, when you have an epiphany, when a light bulb goes off, what it means is not that you now understand everything. It's that you now have something that you see that re, uh, you, now, you now have something that reshapes how you see everything. Right, the light bulb that goes off isn't for you to understand everything. We want the light bulb to go off that reframes how you see everything. So that's what we're gonna use this for. And the way I think about this is the idea of, of revelation, but it's essentially what is it that gets seen? And the problem is a lot of us, what gets seen is what we are already looking for and not what is actually revealed to us. And so we want to utilize this season to recognize that tension in our lives as we prepare ourselves, right? to celebrate Christmas. So that's what we're gonna be doing over the next um, few weeks together. And I wanna do this, and what, what makes me excited about this is because most of us arrange our time to be more productive and efficient and all those things. And what we're gonna be doing is actually utilizing time in a much different way. We're gonna util utilizing the time to enter into a story. The story of God, the story of Jesus, the story of God's work, His revelation to us and for our lives and our stories to enter into His story, right? And see what it is He wants to do with our stories in order to include them and actually to make them His. So we're gonna be rearranging. We're gonna do this the whole year uh, coming up um, next year. That's where we're going. It really excites me. I'm not a traditional guy, um, but I'm really excited about looking at this a little bit differently. This is what I want for you to get. So what I'm gonna do today we're gonna sort of back up in time. We're gonna be looking in the Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter one. So if you have your Bibles, you can look there. And I'm gonna sort of half tease out how to read your Bible and then kind of in the context of this message called Unexpected Hope. Where is it we derive our hope from? What is it that can provide us with a foundation for our hope? And that's what I intend to do. And you're gonna to have to stay with me because um, there'll be some, some, some tedious things and then hopefully we'll, we'll wrap a beautiful bow on this. Um, by the end of our time, it'll go, ah, oh, maybe you'll have an epiphany, a light bulb, and it will change or shape how you see um, this upcoming season. That would be my goal in this. Um, a lot of what we're used to when we think about Christmas and is we, we, we talk about the long expected Jesus. Come now, long expected Jesus. What were they looking for? What were, what would have been the, what were they been looking for in the first century? And we read verses like this in Matthew chapter one, verse 22. And it says this, that all of these things, this is out of the story we'll read in larger context in just a moment. But it says, all of this was to, what took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a quote, right? If you're looking in your Bibles, you probably have a little note there, a little letter out beside that passage. Mine is, um, mine's G. And if you look down, it shows you that G is Isaiah 7, 14. If you go back and you read Isaiah 14, you'll see that verse cited there, that a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what a lot of us have grown up thinking is that this, these prophecies that are all through the Bible, like somehow in the first century or before the first century, they had like a checklist. 
And people would map these things together, sort of like the modern day people who look for the end of times. They have like these charts and graphs and they're looking for all these things. And they do have this checklist and they're just checking off. Oh, he fits this, he fits this, he fits this. This is the Messiah. And, and it's, it's, it's like some kind of cosmic scavenger hunt. And that's not at all how these prophecies would have been understood. Of course, they pointed to the coming of the Messiah. But they also had real narrative, story, context to them. I've actually included on the notes, this is from Isaiah 7. And Isaiah 7 is a king, King Ahaz. And he's like, oh my gosh, we're about to be attacked. I need to form some partnerships with some people who can help stave off this attack. And Isaiah meets him and says, do not do that. God's going to protect you. God's going to take care of you. And so King Ahaz, king Ahaz is like, I don't know about this. And, and Isaiah says, the Lord said, give him a sign. What sign do you want to see? And then Ahaz sort of, sort of in like a, I, I, I don't want to test God and, and presume on God, so I'm not ask for a sign. And Isaiah's like, you fool, well, here's the sign he's going to give you. A virgin shall conceive a child and he shall uh, be with a child and bear a son and his name shall be Emmanuel. And then it goes on, it talks about what this person would do. And what you realize is that when you begin to, to see and understand this, this, this has a much different context in the narrative. And this is the way that all these prophecies are given to us so that we enter into something. We're not, we're not looking for proof beyond a reasonable doubt. We're entering into something that reshapes and reframes that God reveals himself to us. Part of the thing that we have to understand about the way the Bible is given to us, about the way especially these prophecies come to us, they're not primarily given to us to give us evidence that makes us believe beyond a reasonable doubt or prove something once and for all. They are given to us to reveal to us, to make sure that what gets seen is from God. Does that make sense? Like, like we, 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 in our Western, especially if you grew up in the apology, this sort of apologetic era, and, they're, and they're, listen, those are good things and they're helpful, I get all that. But this is, the Bible is not given to us as some kind of document to prove itself. It's given to us to reveal to us who God is and how God is. His revelation is for us to know Him. And what you begin to see is something very, very different in this. And what we will see today is that a lot of us think that our hope is in somehow that God's gonna do something on our behalf that gets us out from where we are or works the circumstances out the way we want or does something that changes or, or shapes the course of where we are. Instead, God enters into where we are and He reminds us that our unexpected hope is found in His presence. It's what's interesting to me when I think about this. So if we think about God coming to save us, I would think God comes to remove us from whatever it is that threatens our comfort or our peace or our joy or whatever it is that we're looking for. But God doesn't do that. In order for God to save us, right, He came to be with us. And this is what I want for us to look at today. I want to let God reveal Himself to us in this way um, over the next few minutes that we have together and then particularly as we prepare for this next season. In order for something to be unexpected, right, it, it implies that you had to have expectations, which we all have, right? What is it that you were expecting? What is it that you would be expecting if God were to show up and be with you? If God were to enter into your space and your time and your life and your world, what would you expect? And we all have them. And what you need is to be honest about these things because a lot of us, this is why we're disappointed with God. Because we came asking, believing, thinking that God would do one thing and He didn't do that. And so we usually just say, well, God didn't do anything because we don't have eyes. What, what doesn't get seen is what he actually did because we're trying or we're looking for what we thought that he ought to do. 
We want to let him reveal himself to us. We want to be really, really mindful as we enter into this place and into this time. So let's observe how God shows up. So in the first century, right, um, it was was chaotic. Uh, Jerusalem, Israel was occupied by Rome. Um, They lived under Roman oppression. It was very governed. There were uh, Jewish citizens who basically um, sold themselves to the Roman government and worked for the Roman government. And they made lots of money and got a share in the profits. And they did this at the expense of their relationships a lot of times with the Jewish people. They sort of bought into this way. And a lot of those guys were tax collectors, right? You've probably heard that. These were guys who colluded with the Roman government to extort money from their, their fellow Jews. And they made a lot of money off of it and just put them in a really bad place. And this was all going on. There, there were groups of people that were thought to be the Messiah, that had actually tried to overthrow Romans' occupation in Jerusalem. This happened about 150 years before. There were groups that were rallying in Jesus' day to do the exact same thing. There was was all this stuff. Like like the expectation was the people sitting around with like 14 verses of, of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel looking for the return of Jesus. They were actually talking about it as though they would be delivered from the Roman government. And the best way to think about this is that, that this, this idea or this, this concept of the coming Messiah was the same way, probably had the same kind of traction in that day as a coming election has in our day. Did you know there's an election? Like it's always election season. <laughs> like as soon as one is over, the next one starts. Like it's always something. There are people who sit around the coffee shop and they talk about who's this and who's that. And the, and the longer and more this drags on and things don't work out the way we want them to, the more divided we become, the more feisty we become, the more desperate we become, the more angry we become. Trying to demand that something, this person will finally do what we expect to be done. Right? And that, that, that's what's going to happen. Everybody's gonna, this is the person who will finally do, but depending on which side of the aisle you're on, will finally do it. That will be the narrative for the next however long, right? And this is probably what was going on. Like this kind of language, this person will finally do for us what we want done. And what we want done is Rome whipped and to get back to our way of life. That's what they're all looking for. There's almost no historical evidence that anyone was looking for a virgin to give birth to a child. Nobody's looking for that. They weren't running their checklists. Nobody's preaching that as a chart and charting it out. And so this is what happened. So about 90 miles north of uh, this area where Jerusalem and Bethlehem is about five miles out. So 90 miles north of this is a little town called Nazareth. It's insignificant. Um, in fact, it's, it's actually literally comes from the word stick. So it's like literally the sticks. That's where Nazareth is. <clears throat> and so in Nazareth, there's a guy named Joseph and a girl named Mary, and they're very young and they're gonna get married, right? I don't think Joseph won the bachelor or anything, but you get the idea that, that somehow they got together, maybe they were betrothed their parents, but Joseph said, will you marry me? Mary said, yes. They're excited about beginning their new life together. I mean, think about you, like you're excited about the, all the things that are about to happen. And all of a sudden, Mary has a visitation from God and he says, hey, you're gonna give birth to God's son. And Mary has this famous prayer in Luke, right? She says, be it done to me according to your word. And she becomes pregnant and then she tells Joseph. Joseph's like, I know how this works. Right, so this is what's happening. Now listen to this. This is how it's recorded for us in Matthew. Remember, Matthew was one of the tax collectors who had extorted money from his fellow Jews and had come to Christ, had turned, left everything and followed Jesus, became one of his disciples. This is what he wrote down about all the things that he was, um, 
that was, ha- that were ha- that was happening in the, the, the works about Jesus. And so in, starting in verse 18 of chapter one, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about, colon. So here's the story. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph and before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit, right? That's an epiphany. What? Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. And that's a really important thing to note. Her husband was faithful to the law and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. The Jewish laws, the Pharisees, the high priest, the temple was not friendly to young ladies who were pregnant out of wedlock. This was actually an offense of adultery. There's a lot of complexity to this. And Joseph decides, look, this wasn't what I signed up for. I don't really know how this happened. You said it's God. I'm like, all right, but, but I'm just gonna decide, I, 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 gotta just, I gotta just get back to the life that I was gonna have. I don't, I don't have time for this. But he doesn't wanna shame her or embarrass her. She's gonna come up with a way to make sure that she's not harmed by this and he's just gonna slide out. That's his plan. That's reasonable, right? He's not being mean. He could have outed her. He could have outed her, but he says, you know what? I'm just, we're gonna be cool. I'm gonna be cool. You be cool and we'll just go on. And that was his plan. He's a faithful man. So he knew the law. He knew what happened to young women in this. And and he didn't want to put her through that. But he also knew about his own fidelity and what he needed to preserve his own self as a faithful law abiding uh, person, a Torah abiding person. It's a verse 20. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, David, uh, uh, sorry, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what, she, uh, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. And so now Jesus is kind of, I mean, Joseph is kind of stuck. He has this plan. He has a dream. And now the plan that he was gonna execute is no longer, right? It's, it's, it's disrupted. Because God said, hey, what Mary told you is actually true. And nobody else knows this. There's, no, there's, there's, there's rumors, but no one's thinking this is God. And so they're in this little stick town and, and Joseph's like, oh, all right, all right, all right. But somewhere in there, because he knew the law, he knew the Torah and he knew the prophets, right? And he knew the Psalms. What he may have remembered is, I remember this from this King Ahaz. The sign would be that there would be a virgin who would conceive and would give birth and we're supposed to name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Joseph, I don't know if he wrote this down in his journal. I don't, we don't know. We have no idea how this got into Matthew's gospel. He's the only one who mentions this. It's miraculous. So Joseph is wrestling with this. And this is actually what gets recorded, right? Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and he took Mary home as his wife and he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and they gave him the name, God saves us. Right, the Lord is my salvation, Jesus. So this is, this is what happens, but I, but I want us to kind of enter into this even, even more so. So what Joseph thinks, right? Joseph, 
He is about to, he, he gets, he's, he's, he's betrothed, he's engaged. Um, Mary comes in and says she's pregnant. God says what she says is true. You need to marry her. He's like, oh my gosh, he marries her. And I like, okay, we're gonna settle down in this little stick town. We can deal with the rumors, but at least no one else will know until it's time. And all of a sudden there comes out uh, uh, this law that they're gonna, they're gonna tax people. The government's gonna act in a way that causes chaos and intrusion to everybody's life. And I know we can't imagine that kind of uh, thing happening, but that's what happened. And now Mary and Joseph have to leave and they have to head 90 miles south to Bethlehem, to register in the census, to be taxed. Mary is nine months pregnant. All right, this isn't like jumping in the car. They're gonna be on a camel for four days or a donkey for five, camel, a donkey for four days to get to Bethlehem. They get there, right? They're thinking, surely someone put us up. No, no, no room in the inn, so Jesus is born where? You know the story, right? A manger. But we think of this as like this clean, like Charlie Brown kind of thing. Like he was in a... They, they, they come four days journey on a camp. There's nowhere for them to stay. And so they're put out in this room outside where the, where the animals are. Like this isn't cool. And, and then what happens is this happens, some wise men, eventually they, they, wise men show up at Jesus' house. They bring him a bunch of money and gold and frankincense and myrrh, bring a bunch of, a bunch of stuff. And on the way in, they stopped off at Herod's house and they said, hey, Herod, we're wise men. We've come from a, from a long ways off and we've come because we hear that the king has been born. Now, this is the same thing as like walking in and saying, like, you're talking about a stolen election? Like, is that what we're talking about here? It's that kind of chaos. What do you mean another king? Like, no, 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 this doesn't happen. And, he, and all of a sudden, you know what Herod decides to do when he hears rumors about this? He decides to have all the babies in that area, all the males that were born, he decides to have them slaughtered, killed. I mean, this is, this is gritty, hard, terrible stuff that God enters into. But God had told Joseph in another dream, right? He thought he was gonna settle in Bethlehem. Now he's gotta to go to Egypt. And so he takes off to Egypt on a camel with a, with a newborn or a young, young baby off to Egypt, probably another day or two day journey. We're not sure exactly how far, but, but some length of time to get to Egypt. So he settles in Egypt. And all of a sudden he hears that Herod, in a dream, every time he has a dream, his life gets upside down. Or he has a dream, oh, Herod's dead, you can go back. So he says, I'm gonna go back to Jerusalem, back to Israel because this is where the king of the Jews ought to be raised. I'm gonna go back to, to Jerusalem and we'll raise him there. And when they get there, they realize that Herod's son is now over this area and he's more unhinged than his dad was. And so they head back up to north, back to where it all began in this stick town called Nazareth. And this is where Jesus grows up. Like this is, this is how Jesus came in to the world. And what I wanna ask you, the reason I ask you is because what would you expect if God is coming into the world, how would you expect it to happen? Probably not like that, right? God could have made it a little bit easier. I mean, I was thinking about this, right? Madison, we have one grandbaby and Madison and Carson, when, when, when Madison was pregnant, right? You're like, you wanna do everything you can to make sure everything is as, is as good and easy and hospitable as possible. Every, you know, you know, if Carson comes to me and said, hey man, I think as Madison's nine months pregnant, I think we're gonna go on a donkey trip for four days. I'm like, whoa, right? We're, not, we're gonna figure out some other way to, to get this done, right? You, you would think that someone would, would but no, he just, he just enters right into this, this mess. What I think is really interesting about this is the way this gets revealed to us. Like that's what we're looking for. What is it that gets seen, right? Number one is God's entrance with, with, with what he did to Joseph is very unique, right? Joseph knew the law and the prophets. 
And he recognizes somewhere that this is really from God. What gets, what gets confirmed to him is what Mary said is true. This is real and this is true and this is confirmed. But what God is revealing, he does confirm that what he's revealing in there is that this child will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's interesting to me that this is not only unique, it's also personal. That Joseph didn't go on like a speaking tour and go and say, hey, Isaiah 7 says, and ha, ah, here's Mary, right? He didn't do that. He just sort of sucks it up on his own. And have you ever thought about this? Probably not. This is just me like sitting in my office going, ah, right? Like you got to think this is that he's got this information. He doesn't tell anybody. We don't know anything about this really until Matthew or at least, at least after Jesus is crucified and resurrected. And all this begins to get put into circulation and writings and the way they're talking about this. And this is really personal as he just has to use this to see and understand and believe something about what God is showing him. And what, he's, what I think he shows us and what, what, what he shows Joseph and what we can learn from this is two things. Number one is that Mary's son, right, this, this child that is born, reveals himself as the one who will save us from our sins. And he will do that or accomplish that by being with us. Now, most of us are gonna blow right by that, but I want you to hear this again. God came to save you and to save me from our sins by coming to be with us. Salvation. Most of us have heard something about salvation being on the cross that gets, if you make the right decision about that, you get to go to heaven when you die. That's what eternal life is. That's what salvation is. And what Jesus actually said when he's praying for us is, Father, eternal life is this, that they may know you and know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Does that sound different? It sounds just like God came to save you from your sins by coming to be with you. He came to save us from our sins by coming to be with us. What we have to understand is these two things, that this is the arrival, the coming of Jesus, the entrance of God into our world is his salvation. And number two, it is his presence. The great news about God coming to be with us is he came to be with you right where you are. This is a powerful thing for us to consider. This is how we are saved from our sins. This is how we are redeemed. This is how God's work comes to bear in our lives. The salvation that Jesus would bring, and I want you to hear this very clearly, is to return us to the life for which we have been created. He would deliver us from the death that comes, uh, that comes from life apart from God. He came to return you to the life for which you were meant to live, life with him. He would deliver you and me from the death that comes from living our lives apart from God. A lot of us think that, 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 that you know, the wages of sin is death, right? This is like God's threat for you not to do bad things. And death is the consequence, is the punishment for the bad things you've done. That's not what it is. Death is the reality that we experience when we live apart from the source and the one for whom we have been created. There is no other option. And what he's inviting us into is a story, a, a way of life with God, God with us. That's the picture of this. So I wanna tell you a story and see, because some of you are going, I don't know what this means. Well, I'm gonna try to see if I can help you. Because we have expectations. 
And what a lot of us have, and I have conversations every week with people and they tell me about things that they have grown up and they say, Mike, I'm still trying to reconcile this. And because we keep seeing things through the same lens that we have always seen them. And we just overlay and overlay and overlay. And we keep being more and more disappointed and more and more disillusioned because the world isn't better or my circumstances aren't better. And what God says to us is I have come not to save you out of your circumstances, but to be with you in them. How does this bring us hope? How do we learn how this brings us hope? This is, uh, I'm gonna read this story. This is from Larry Crabb. He's written a book called Pressure's Office probably about 15 years ago. Um, I don't know if the book's still in print. It is a, it's a fabulous book. And Larry Crabb is one of my, my favorites. But he talks about when he was three years old, he lived uh, with, in their grandfather's house. He had a really old, old-fashioned house, house with only one bathroom and that bathroom was on the second floor. And you can remember those kind of houses with the big stiff hinges and the really uh, difficult locks and the sticky doors and all that. And he says, one Saturday afternoon, I decided I was a big boy and I could use the bathroom without anyone's help. So I climbed the stairs, closed and locked the door behind me. And for the next few moments, I felt very self-sufficient like three-year-olds can feel. But then when it was time to leave, I couldn't unlock the door. I tried with every ounce of my three-year-old strength, but I couldn't do it. So I panicked. I felt again like a very little boy as the thought went through my head, I might spend the rest of my life in this bathroom. My parents and likely the neighbors heard my desperate scream. Are you okay? My mom shouted through the door that she could not open from the outside. Did you fall? Did you hit your head? I can't unlock the door, I yelled. So get me out of here. I wasn't aware of it, but right then my dad had raced down the stairs, ran to the garage door uh, to find the ladder, hauled it off the hooks, and he had leaned it against the side of the house right beneath the bathroom window. And with adult strength, he pried it open. He climbed into into my prison. He walked past me and with the same strength, turned the lock and opened the door. Thanks, Dad, I said, and ran out to play. That's how I thought the Christian life was supposed to work. That's how we thought it was supposed to be. That when we get in a mess, right, we're supposed to just do this. But what we find is that sometimes, right, we're stuck and we still struggle with sin patterns. We still struggle with a thought life that seems out of control or that we don't want. We still struggle with sadness that leads to depression or anxiety. We still struggle with these things. We can't figure out why doesn't God get me out of here? If you love me, God, you would do what I want. Larry Crabb continues. God has climbed through the small window into my dark room, but he doesn't walk by me and turn the lock that I couldn't budge. Instead, he sits down on the bathroom floor and he says, come sit with me. He seems to think that climbing into that room to be with me matters more than letting me out to play. Right? My, 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 my challenge, my, my, my hope for us is that God would give us a deep unexpected hope that comes from learning how to see him, to see him as he is, revealing himself to you. Or we can keep demanding that our hope is fulfilled by God doing what we think that he should do. Or we can perhaps trust that this rescue, that our salvation isn't actually about our escape, but it's actually about his presence. And we learn how to embrace the miracle of a life with God, that God with us is the invitation for life with God. Y'all, this is our vision.
We want to reach people and help them walk with God, not so that your life works well, but so you experience life with God so that your story becomes his story. Right? How in the world are we going to find ways Right, to find ways where we can really sense a deep, uh, we can really experience a deep sense of hope in his presence. Right? When you don't know how to do it yet, it has to be revealed. It has to be revealed. So here's what I would ask you to do. I want you to write down, and, and I would do this, however, what, what do you expect? Right? What do you expect God to do? And then take some time to join us. We have devotions online. They're gonna be walking through a lot of these texts that we're looking at that have to do with Christmas and this unexpected hope. We would love for you to use this just to let God reveal himself to you and then contrast that, right, to what you already see or expect to see and who he is and what he does. God came to save you from your sin. And he came to do that by bringing you an invitation to live and to dwell and to remain and to walk with him.